You know, my name, Orit, means light. Orit means light. I think Gemma means, well, I like to think with the gem bit means jewel. Right, nice. So sparkly. Yes, and aristocratic <laughs> and expensive. I'm, and I'm going to find out the real meaning and it'll, it'll probably be normal. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And today's guest is the inimitable Dr. Orit Wolf. Orit is an international concert pianist and she has the unconventional, and in my opinion, beautiful, blend of combining her passion for music with the world of business, where for many years she has disrupted traditional thinking and practices with her unique approach to creativity and innovation. By the age of 23, she had already acquired three degrees in distinctions summa cum laude from Tel Aviv University, Boston University, and the Royal Academy of Music, winning numerous international awards such as the Khan Award for the Arts, BBC Radio 3, Hattori Foundation, American Israel Cultural Foundation and many, many more. Based in Israel, she divides her time between a demanding concert career, delivering masterclasses all over the world and being a guest lecturer where she encourages students to leave their personal mark. Her TED Talk, Play the Keynote of Your Life, saw her bring music leadership and innovation into action and she is now proud author of her poetry book Love in B Minor and is currently authoring the book The Language of the Creative Mind. Not busy much. (laughs) Wow thank you for such an introduction. May I take you with me everywhere I go? Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. I'd be honoured to go with you everywhere. (laughs) Before we welcome you properly let's just take a listen to this. Welcome, Orit. <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Beautiful setting and especially being next to you. Really speaking about life is really great uh, treasure. I think what we heard now is Chopin. I was about to ask you, what did we hear and, yeah. and when did you play that? That was absolutely beautiful. Wow. This is from um, a CD I made a long time ago without any editing. That was part of the the vision of the CD because I didn't like people who are making so many editing. I want to give the raw experience and what we heard just now is the Chopin Fantasie Impromptu, uh, one of my favorite music in the world and the piece that really made me decide that I'm going to be a concert pianist. Really? That's yeah. so interesting. I literally, that just took my breath away. I could feel the hairs on my arms standing up. I mean, absolutely amazing. So I'm just completely fascinated. Where did your love of music begin? I have to say, I'm not coming from a musical family. You know, usually pianists, they have parents who are musicians or at least uh, they know how to play. And in my family, absolutely not. 
a mark of piano music or anything. My parents are doctors in, in different fields, in chemistry and psychology. But there was tremendous love for diversity, for different kinds of music. So my mother would put classical music, operas, jazz, Arabic music. It was very much apparent at home. And she used to take me to the Israel Philharmonic concerts and stay until the break and give me something to eat during the performance, something you're not supposed to do. And in the break, she would say, we're going home now. It's too long. So it was just a stimulation that brought into my life and love. And when I was in first grade, I had a neighbor whom I was going to school with every day. And on the way to school, we were just walking. She told me, you know, my parents bought me a piano and I'm starting to get piano lessons and I'm so happy and excited about it. Would you like to come and join and see my lessons? And I said, uh, yeah, sure. That's, that's wonderful. It's in the neighborhood. So here I was for three months. Every Sunday and Wednesday, I would join her to her piano lessons. And after three months, I was brave enough to ask the teacher, just a local teacher, I said, could I bring my mother and can I study with you as well? And she said, do you have a piano at home? And I said, no, I'm sorry, we don't have a piano. She said, well, bring your mother tomorrow at half past 12 and we'll speak, we'll see what's happening. So I brought my mother and this woman made a some kind of an examination. And my mother thought that this woman probably wants to earn some money and to get uh, another student. And that was something really beautiful because my mother said, I don't mind that you start studying piano, but we don't, we're not going to buy your piano right away. You have to prove you're serious. So every day I would have half an hour to practice at my friend's house. And after a couple of months, the mother of my friend called my mother and she said, Ruth, We've got a problem. Uh, I think you ought to buy your daughter a piano because the piano is in my bedroom and it really interrupts my <laughs> afternoon <laughs> sleep so when your daughter is coming every day so committedly. And the next day, my parents bought me a piano. So I, I was never told to practice. And that's something interesting because, you know, my kids they don't want to play and I don't push them. So it was a very inner passion and will to be part of it and to do it. Some kind of a fate that was driven me. I really like that your mum didn't buy you the piano straight away and actually you had to prove that you really were committed. On the other hand, I had one or two piano lessons and my parents got me a piano straight away and I learned probably chopsticks and not much more. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's never too late, by the way. And it was a waste, actually, and it was so beautiful that they did that, but... I was never committed. So I love that you had to earn that. But you know something interesting? I thought, I think this brought me to what I'm, I was later on dealing with, creativity. Because I really believe that creativity comes when you don't have all the menu, when you don't have all the tools and skills that you need. And when you're, when you're under constraints, when you're under limitations, that's where you start being creative. That's when you start to improvise, when you have mistakes uh, on stage and it's unavoidable. So, you know, not having all the means that I could have afforded because my parents could not afford right away to buy me a piano, that was really brought me to develop this passion and drive yes. and inner intrinsic motivation, I would say. Yes, yes. No, I love that. Instead, I felt incredibly guilty because it wasn't my passion, um, but it looked very nice in our house. <laughs> I have greater respect for pianists like yourself because it is it's such a it's such a dedication thank you um, but you love music and that's love music. that's so important you know you don't have to play you have to listen and enjoy it and take the ideas and the, the inspiration out for your own 
your own business. Yeah, and I want to talk about the the mistakes in the music a, a little bit later. Sure. Um, but for now, the podcast is called mm. <laughs> Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? <laughs> so what makes you uncomfortable? Too many things, <laughs> indeed. But, you know, let me start with something very personal. You know, being a concert pianist is not just a profession. I don't believe there is professional and personal life aside. I think this is one. I think every profession nowadays is about one. And especially when you go on stage, people don't just get your content. They don't just listen to your music. They don't just close their eyes. They open their eyes and they watch you and your body language and your uh, clothing and your spark in the eyes and your mistakes. You know, you are there to be judged for the good and the bad. And so the personal is very apparent and you can't avoid, you know, having mistakes. It's un unavoidable. And the question number one is, is what makes me uncomfortable making mistakes, but getting to improvise and overcome them. But sometimes, you know, when people clap after a good performance, what makes me uncomfortable is actually to watch that one person who does not clap to me, oh, <laughs> you know, wow. in the first yes. or second row and my eyes are just on him. And I tend, you know, unluckily just to not watch anyone who is so much enthusiastic and clapping and all of it and just watch that person that is on his phone that is on his mobile, that is texting, texting somebody, that is not clapping, that is watching his watch. And it's upsetting. So I think that the personal life is, is really part of being a pianist. And I'm very uncomfortable being judged. You know, when, when, you, when you get the bad criticism, it's not just about your music making. It's not just about your interpretation. It's also about who you are, because one cannot differentiate or separate the two, right? It's so interesting. A hundred thousand people might be clapping, but you see the person that sure. doesn't clap. Sure. And it reminds me of someone saying to me very recently, um, not everyone will clap. And that realisation is it's hard. And it's and it I do think it's uncomfortable. It's it's making me think of the parallels of, of feedback. You might get a hundred amazing comments positive, brilliant, after maybe doing a stage performance or a, or a lecture or a talk on stage. I know you do lots of talks. And those those hundred comments that are, are brilliant and positive, wonderful, you don't see those. You see the one or two negative ones, don't you? Yeah. So we have to train ourselves uh, yeah. looking at the good. But let's not lie to ourselves. Sometimes I'm thinking to myself, I'm watching too much the ones who are not clapping. And what does it do to me? I'm disappointed, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm exposed, I'm naked. Yes, I feel naked many times when I'm on stage because I don't just give my music and my virtuosity playing just as you hear at the shop and I'm giving my soul. When I want to hear somebody's playing and know who he is or who she is, I ask them to play some romantic music and I see their soul through, the, through their hands. So it's, it could be very sensitive how are we coping with bad uh, criticism or lack of criticism as well? And there's a lot of different tastes and different criticism and, and jealousy out there, right? And I think we ought to really ask ourselves, did I deliver something that I believe in? And when I ask this question, then I don't go to the Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. I don't watch what people say because if I really feel I gave something amazing, that's good enough for me. Yes, you know in yourself. And you're the one It's reminding me of the quote, the man in the arena. And I yes, know we've, we've spoken about that. Why don't you say that? Well, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, and, and the quote's quite long, but essentially I'd rather be bloody marred and scarred and stand in the arena and fail daring greatly than never trying at all. 
Beautiful. And so you're standing in the arena. I am. And that's not easy. That's uncomfortable. But look at what you're achieving and the impact you're having on people around you. Right. And those ones throwing the negative and the stones, like in the stand in the arena, in the man in the arena quote, they're never going to stand in the arena. Right. And especially the ones who write about music, the critics, yes. they're not the ones who know how to play the piano. They're the ones who know how to write about playing and they forgot how to play. And they're sitting very comfortably in the chair at the hall of their, their home and they feel free to write whatever they want. But it's only one taste, one interpretation. But, you know, the hardest time that I felt uncomfortable mm. I don't think I've ever told you this, that for years I was teaching after I graduated from the Royal Academy and did my PhD, you know, I was teaching at the Tel Aviv University. And one day after 10 years of having a career in creativity and innovation and creative marketing and, you know, running around the world and giving concerts, then one day I get this email, not even a meeting, saying, unfortunately, due to budget reason, your courses will be stopped from next semester. We are sorry to inform you that you'll not be continuing your work. And it was just an email. And I felt so devastated and ashamed and humiliated even. And I said to myself, for me, this has happened to me. I'm, I'm filling the halls of the university, you know, 400 students in one class. Everybody wants to get into my class. You know, there's a waiting list to get in and, and they fire me. And yes, they fire me. I didn't have a tenure track and I, I could be easily fired. And I remember that moment to change my life because two students of mine came over the cl after class and they said, you can't stop what you're doing. You can't stop your vision and your mission to touch people through sounds, through, you know, speaking about music. You touch us in, in such a great that way that we don't know yet before and do it privately. And I said, you know, how can I do it privately? I don't have this huge business to start being offering concerts and subscribers. You know, I, I don't. And they said, yes, but you have to. If we find you a place with a grand piano, will you consider that possible? And I said, yes, if you find me a nice hall with a grand piano and you're willing to help, then I'll consider this. And two days later, they called me up and they said, come over. We found you this beautiful place in Tel Aviv. Take your car and come see this. And I came over and I saw this very nice place. It was tiny. It was only for 60 people. And we started the following week with small courses of, on music and innovation. And after two months, I had to leave because the place grew so many subscribers. So we had to leave, to leave a much grander place. And finally, after a couple of years, starting with 30 people, now we are over 4,000 subscribers in different places in Israel. And I feel that I'm fulfilling my vision to touch people through conversation and through music communication. And it's not about the music only. It's really about communicating into, into the very inner core of potential being. That's what I really do. So if somebody would have told me back then in 2007, yeah. you know, this will be the greatest moment of your life being fired. I felt very uncomfortable. I would never believe that it could have happened and could turn things upside down. So from such a difficult, challenging, personal moment with real adversity, such great opportunity and possibility came from that. Right. And still, even today, with the 4,000 subscribers and, you know, great concerts and about 80 different concerts a year and lots of um, journeys abroad, still I'm looking at those who do not clap. <laughs> so it's innate in us to... Um, to look for what's missing. And I think this is a training of positive thinking and of optimism that we have to train ourselves to, to really look for what do we do for people, most people, because there will always be 10% that are not keen and not aligned and not agreeing with you, right? Are we willing to be there in this uncomfortable bit? 
and go on. Right, they're playing it safe, right? Yeah, they're playing it safe. Unless you stand in the arena, I'm not going to listen to your feedback. That's how I feel. But I've, I've learned that the hard way through feedback. You know, we would say feedback's a gift. It's a gift until it's not. Mm, <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, we live in a, in a society that says, well, we are tolerant for failures, but actually we are not. We're just good in saying that, but we're not good in acting upon this, right? So I feel... You know, when I go and give workshops for leaders of corporates, you know, I say, can you please prepare your CV of failures? Oh, wow. I like that. Yeah. And can you start a meeting, the group meeting, starting with you as the boss, telling about the failure of the month that you've experienced? Yes. And when you start doing that, then you bring the legitimacy for others to open up and speak about it as well. Yes. And I can tell Culture. you one more thing. You know, being on stage when I was younger... You know, my teacher said to me, if only you practice eight hours a day, you'll be perfect on stage. You'll have no mistakes, no failures. And I'd practice eight hours a day when I was 14, 15, 16, 17. And then I go on stage. I will never forget this in my whole life. Um, and it's live recording to the radio. And I have a blackout, Gemma, blackout in front of, you know, thousands of, of listeners, live recording to the radio. And it's a, it's a beautiful hall as well, full of people. And... You know, I remember myself shocked, stopping the music, stop playing. Everybody could say that I made a mistake, that I don't know how to continue. And finally I continued, but it was a very shameful moment. And when I finished that concert, concert I realized if I want to be a concert pianist, if I want to go for this insecurity profession, um, I have to learn to improvise and I have to learn musical improvisation. So whatever comes on, I'll be ready. And, you know, things are going on all the time. And sometimes not even for you, but also for your partner. Just a couple of months ago, I went to stage with the Tel Aviv Museum of Art with a great mandolin player, Shmulek Elbaz. And he goes on stage with me and started, we start playing a you know, Mozart sonata. And all of a sudden, after a few minutes, the strings were plugged. So the string was just off completely. And he stopped the music and he said to the audience, I'm so sorry, but I'll have to go backstage and change the, the string. And I said, that's okay. I'm just going to play you some shopping music in the meantime. And I took over. And after five, six minutes, he came back. Uh, and we continue playing. And again, it happens. Now, to make the long story short, it happened six times six. in one concert. <gasps> because he bought the wrong strings that were probably very dry. So each time he put them on, the mandolin, they just broke. And we just continued and I just improvised and I had the repertoire just to keep going. And when we finished, somebody went backstage and said, that was planned, wasn't it? You planned it, right? I said, no, we did not plan that. That's happened, you know, by mistake. And they said, well, it looked so natural how you picked it up. I said, these are years of improvisation that make me feel comfortable in the uncomfortable moments. But it's reminding me of when I first met you and I went to what I thought was a quite corporate conference, Purple Beach, run by, run by the brilliant anime, Reese. And I knew it was innovation and different, but, but I thought it was just a, a normal event. And I was sitting there waiting for it to start and the lights went down. It was absolute silence and all of a sudden you were there on stage playing... Asturias by Albeniz beautiful beautiful piece of music and I was mesmerized I thought what a wonderful way to start the conference and then the other speakers started and I didn't think any more of it I just thought how <laughs> wonderful and then all of a sudden they said we'd like to bring Dr. Orit Wolf back it was just the most surprising moment and you played different 
music, but showed us different ways to play it and improvising and, and essentially making mistakes and for the audience to be part of that. And that was that was such a moment. And that's essentially what you've been doing in your... Well, that's very kind of you to remember. It was 10 years ago already, What? exactly 10 years ago. And you, you, t you talk about it as if it was just yesterday. That means a lot to me because, you know, they say that we... We listen to 50% of what people speak to us and we remember 50% of what we listen to. So we are, you know, we are left with the maximum of 25% of any event. And the fact that you really took, took this with you for so many years, it oh. means a lot to me. Well, we recreated it, didn't we? You know, no, no idea is a new idea. I loved it so much that when I was running a big conference, I had to have you as the, as the keynote uh, speaker, but you opened the whole thing in the Royal Opera House and it was wow. the most beautiful moment. But I have to say that every conference you have arranged, and this is not even a compliment, it's a fact, you've done it so with primary innovation. You did it always with newness and, and feeling of, wow, this I've never experienced before. And every time you challenge yourself, I mean, a person like you who has such a great experience in the marketing, you know, arena could, you know, could go up and play safe. You know, you know, all the business people, you know how to run uh, conferences and big <laughs> events, but you never play it safe. You always challenge yourself and say, no, I have to do it differently. I have to bring different people. And this provocation that you have within you, I think this is connecting us very much so. Well, I think safe is boring and, um, and you're definitely not safe. So tell us about how when you play the music, you play in three different ways. Yeah, what I'm trying to show that the music is a tool to understand leadership and business. And I took a piece that everybody knows, you know, the prelude number one by Johann Sebastian Bach. And I played it in three different ways. And then I made a vote and I asked people in the audience, who like number one, who like number two, who like number three. And you can see that people have different feelings and different ideas and different invitation and preferences. And I said, this is exactly what it's about in your business. It's, you know, you have a job, but it's your responsibility to make it your own. It's your ability to change the mode and make it something that you feel comfortable with. So there's no one way to deliver something. And, and the music really gives you the platform and the freedom to be yourself within the constraints of the text of the music. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I, I love transforming those musical ideas and critical thinking and metaphors in music making to the business arena. I think this, I'd like, I'd like to bridge the gaps between being an artist and being somebody that is coaching leaders. I think not many people know that there is so much connectivity between the two. And this connectivity is something that also makes me feel today very comfortable. But before, it made me very uncomfortable because some people are thinking, oh gosh, you know, who do you think she is? I mean, is she a pianist? Is she a composer? Is she a writer? Is she a lecturer? Is she uh, doing TED Talks and leadership workshops? I mean, who, who is she? How can we define her? I mean, is she bad in everything or good a little bit in one thing? Or I don't know. It's, it's scary. People are not comfortable with people that are doing lots of things, right? Because if you're not having one expertise, then you're probably not good in anything you're doing. So it's really tricky and it takes time for yourself to be convinced that you're actually a person that wants to connect and bridge two disciplines or three disciplines. How does that make you feel? Make me feel really bad because even today, you know, well, let's talk about something really scary. From here, I'm going to give a masterclass today and in the Royal Academy of Music, which is one of the top music schools in the world. Just a standard day. Yeah, yeah you see, <laughs> I, I'm going to do that. And I, I love it. And I love being there. And 
And you know, but I'm not coming just as a pianist. I'm coming as a as a person that is doing um, music and science re- research, as a, as a poet now, uh, as a lecturer on leadership. And people don't quite eat this. Some people think that I'm not kosher enough or maybe I'm not excelling enough in one thing. So in my profession, lots of people are just great in like Baroque music or they're great in romantic music or they're great in jazz improvisation. They're not doing this and this and this. And it took me years to feel legitimate to do more than one thing. But you know, you know what made me feel comfortable? And this is really important for our listeners that I do lots of things, but it's one vision. So whether I touch people in my lectures or whether I touch people in my workshop or through my sounds or through the poetry that I'm writing, my aim in life is to touch you in new places, in your soul, in your mind that you haven't been reach, reaching yet. So if I touch you in a place where you're going to do something about it, that you were touched, you were opening a new box deep inside, then you're going to do something about it tomorrow morning. That's for me amazing. So really, you know, the word education comes from the word, from the, from the verb to adduce. And to adduce, I didn't know this in English literature and English is not my native tongue, but what I, what I realized to adduce is not to teach anything new, but rather to take, to bring out what's actually already there. Oh, I really like that. It just makes me think that actually it's about enabling. Enabling. It? Yes, I like yes. this word, yes. word very much. I think that's what you do as well. You're enabling people in your podcast to share. You're enabling people to realize their powers and to be one with their talents and enabling people to connect with one another. You're making me blush. Good for, <laughs> good for me. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to uncomfortable. Could you pinpoint a moment or a time when something or someone has made you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, just recently. You know, I was writing during COVID. I decided, you know, what can I do, which is a bit different. And there was a dream that was in the drawer. And I decided to publish my first poetry book, which was all about my love life, <laughs> all about my personal uh, being, about disappointments, about, wow, it's, it's really revealing and exposing and very intimate, very intimate. And, you know, I published a book, I made a special celebration, and I gave the book to many people. And one day, just recently, a very prominent professor whom I'm very much appreciating, it's not just somebody that I don't know, but somebody I really appreciate, comes and says, Orit, can I be honest and say to you, don't give this book to everyone? <laughs> I said, why? Is it not a good book? He said, no, it's, it's a lovely book, but it really interferes with what people think of you out there. It's really not, not in relation and correlation to who you are in the outside. You know, the, the sort of fame that you created to yourself and what people think of you. So and he said, if, if you give this book to everyone, people are starting to think, you know, different things about you or know too much about you that you might not want people to know. Wow. I felt so uncomfortable. And I said, what, what do you mean? Can you, can you pinpoint? Can you be more specific? I said. And he said to me, yeah, open, open six, page 63. He said to me, and read the poem that you yourself wrote. And do you want everyone else to, to watch your, you know, your sexual life there on the page? I mean, you are a very classical pianist. You have this, you know, name of somebody that's very classic and working so hard, practicing hard, you know, and, and you ruin it. 
And that was a moment of me of realizing, my goodness, for me, poetry is art. It's just another art form to bring my inner world outside. For him, it was not an art form. It was rather content. It was rather, wow, now I know her secrets. Now I can imagine her exposed, naked, fragile. And it made me very uncomfortable. And since then, I realized maybe I should not give the book to everyone <laughs> as a present. Yeah, I'm working on myself, I have to say. I'm still working because for me, also when you go on stage, and this, you're going to love this sentence, just last week, I invited my gynecologist to my very close uh, relationship with because he went through you know, 30 years of my life and he was helping me to bring two kids to the world. So I invited him to my concert last week and he said to me, you know, you're so much more naked when you're on a stage than you are in my room. Oh, wow. And that was really shocking and powerful. And I realized, my goodness, that's a sentence to remember. That's when you're vulnerable, yeah. powerful standing on stage. And isn't that really interesting? Your gynecologist said that. I mean, I, I'm yeah. trying to get my, my head around that. I'm also, uh, I just have to say, I really need to see page 63. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks, it's in Hebrew. You won't understand that. But, uh, I'm going to find translations. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm really interested to go back to that because you could react in lots of different ways, but through one person's opinion, why is that feedback making you go, well, maybe I shouldn't, as opposed to, thanks very much, but I'm going to continue doing me. Oh, wow. That's a perfect question. I think we all live in the two edges, so the two extremes of one side wanting to be like everyone else, wants mm -hmm. to be in the rules, act upon the rules, act upon what society expecting us. Eric Byrne, one of the best psychologists from Switzerland in the 70s, wrote a book called Games People Play. And he called it the, you know, the adaptive child behavior. We all want to be adaptive children, like do what we are expected to do, follow the rules. On the other hand, the other edge of every one of us is really want to be the free child, to be, not to be told what to do, to do whatever I want, I wish, I dream, I need. You know, it's like, it's all about me now. And I think our lives are really a play a playground between those two edges. Now, we all have them, but the question that I address to people that I meet, whether I mentor them one-on-one, -on -one, whether I go with them for workshops, or whether I'm, uh, I'm standing up for a guest lecture, what I really like to ask people is, where are you more often? Where is your automatic pilot? Are you more in the free child? Are you more in the automatic uh, adaptive child? What comes out of you naturally? Is it your creative force, your passion? This is my dream. This is what I want to pursue. Or is it, no, people will not like it, or I'm going to be criticized, or how it's going to look from the outside. And let me tell you something. I, I'm more into the creative child part, the, the, the free child mm, persona. Me too. You too. I know. That's why we are self-employed eventually, <laughs> yeah. I think, right? For the good and the bad. Yeah. Um, Miss the salary though, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. In the play child, go on. Yeah. So it's really a playground. You're reminding me of a, a friend of mine, Seth Buchan, who he was the chap that was a park runner, parkour, um, this, this incredible sport, running across buildings in Casino Royale. And he did a talk for us. And he's all about freedom and he's all about playfulness. And he talks about how when we're children, we're imaginative, we're playful, we don't have barriers. But in life, you gradually you get those borders and those barriers. So he talked about if you see a wall, what do you see? And I said, well, I, I, I see that you can jump over it. And he said, that is very, very rare. Most people see 
the block. The block. Wow. That's a, cool. That's which I strong. thought was really interesting. And and actually, as children, we have... I mean, it's probably because I've got an eight-year-old, so I see him jumping over walls, and that's that's my, my point of reference. Um, but as children, they just go for it. They just see play. But society... Restrained us, right? Arguably has yeah. restrained us. Exactly. And I think our job, me and you, and the people who are listening to us and reach until this moment, I think our job is to bring people to free their free child, to let it be more legitimate, to let it have more place. And you know what? We can have a great exercise that I give people I work with is to start watching your language, whether you use verbs like I'd like to, I want to, I dream of. To start to to speak with different language because most people speak like I need, I must, I have to. Those verbs are limitations of what society expecting us. So if you just change tiny bit, and really thinking about what you'd like. And it really reminds me a story of one of my best friends, uh, Tamami Honma, who studied with me here in London years ago. And she'd go to Old Bond Street, New Bond Street, Regent Street, all the best stores, and go in at the age of 21 with no money whatsoever. And she would go in and try those beautiful gowns and dresses for performances and jewelry at Tiffany's and Hermes and Prada. And I would say to her, Mommy, we don't have the money for this. Why do you do this? And she said, well, when I have the money, I'll know where to go and what to buy. <laughs> so she <laughs> would just that. try things yeah. out. She let her free child go and speak. Yes. And eventually she would afford buying all those things. Now, it's not a materialistic metaphor. It's not a materialistic story. Mm. Um, the real story is about letting yourself dream. When you let yourself dream and even articulate your dreams, you'll finally get them. But most people don't even articulate to themselves, don't admit their dreams. Don't know how to, perhaps. Right, because we live in a society that doesn't like dreams, that like orders and rules and chores. And we all have things that we have to do and we must do. Mm-hmm. Life is not just about I want to. Life is about I have to. But try to balance it differently. Mm. And you'll find it that it really changes a lot. Talking of the society we live in, a lot's been happening in recent years with COVID in Israel with with the war. And that must have have taken its toll and and, and been quite uncomfortable. Right. This is another uncomfortable (laughs) issues and story. And we start back in COVID, you know, in my profession, which is going on stages in front of so many people, it will stop abruptly. And Mm -hmm. one has to understand, you know, I'm not going to my office between nine to five. I'm preparing three Three years in advance, all this repertoire, all these concert venues, it's lots of agreements and contracts and uh, artists involved. All of a sudden, all of this preparation is gone abruptly. It's shut down completely. So I experienced lots of changes and I learned to cope with them. But the war that we are now living in as we speak, Mm -hmm. and this is the first time I'm out of the country since October. Yes, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, for all sides. And we are very, very much of an in a very uncertain situation in very much anguish and we are scared we have fears we want our hostages back it's it's complicated yet Mm -hmm. what is the price we have to pay or we we must not pay for bringing people home Uh, it's it's very much a problem it must be incredibly i can't i can't fathom it must be Incredibly yeah. difficult. I think we are living in a disruptive world. Mm. And, you know, there is one kind of people who wants to say, OK, this will pass and we'll, soon we'll be over and soon we'll get back to our routine. But I look at it differently. Let's accept that the stimulations 
or the stimulus, the, the wars, the stock exchanges, you know, the, the COVID, the new viruses, it's, it's bound to happen. We live in a different climate crises. We live in an era of terrorism everywhere. So instead of waiting for a clearer day, just be open-minded to abrupt changes, to act differently, to improvise. Improvisation is not a, a dirty word. It's a really, it's a must word. It is a must word. And what advice would you give to people to, to do that? Because that, that sounds brilliant. But, but in practice, how do you, how do I, you I, I would really say something very simple, that instead of managing your time, which you can't anymore, yes. uh, because, you know, I, I get lots of uh, meetings that are being cancelled, concerts are being cancelled, which make me very uncomfortable. Start managing your energy. Go to your office and ask yourself, look at your diary. What kind of meeting I need to cancel? I must cancel. What kind of meetings do I need to shorten? This is so important. Try to shorten in half your meetings. Try to be flexible and say, well, this I could do in half an hour, not an hour. This I can postpone. This I can unite. And ask yourself, you know, what is my best hours of energy? Who is my givers? Energy is about finding and identifying and recognizing the givers of your life. How many times you are surrounded by takers? Yeah, I call it the radiators, the people that you surround yourself with that radiate energy. Or the, the drains that, yeah. that suck the living daylight. It's like avoid the drains and try not to be a drain yourself. And I just go back to something something you, you said earlier. Perhaps the person that gave you the feedback is an energy taker. Hmm. <laughs> perhaps that feedback needs to go in the furnace and you continue to express the way you want to express yourself in the most beautiful and memorable way that wow. will inspire and be a role model for others. Wow, I never thought about it this way. Actually, I do appreciate this man very much so. But I think trying to protect my reputation is wrong. And this is something that everyone can relate to. Yes. Don't try to protect your reputation because you have no control over it anyhow. Exactly. It reminds me another moment you know, that a woman asked me, how much you take a concert? Or how much you take a lecture? And, you know, I was so shocked at this abrupt question. And I said to her something, I said, I don't take, I give. And remember everyone who listens to us, we give. We give our mind, we give our soul, we give our intellectual property, we give our you know, expertise and knowledge and experience. We give so much. That's what makes our personal stamp, our personal mark. And I said, the cost of the lecture is. So when you separate the cost from yourself, yes, that's something that makes you better, comfortable later. And, because and, and it's not about time, it's about value and, yes, and output. Yes, exactly. You said yeah. that right. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to get the fee for an hour because it's always limited. Yes. And, you know, people who earn well are people who value themselves in such a great way that they take for the value, not for the hour. And I love that. And you knowing that and you knowing where your strengths are, I think is a, is a really brilliant lesson as well. I'm also asking myself, do I love it? Yes. Not if I'm good at yes. it, because if I'm good at it, yes, maybe I can do it very well, mm. but I don't love it. Yeah. So always ask yourself, what is the thing that you're good at? What is the thing that you love doing yes. and connect it to? Yes. Why do you think it's important for leaders, businesses to get uncomfortable? There is no other choice nowadays because the leadership has been changing. It's not the hierarchy anymore. If you think about 20 years ago, you looked at the leader as a talent, uh, as somebody to look up to, as somebody to admire. We don't admire anyone anymore. We live in an era of no admiration, of sharing, of conversing, of being all together. So the best leadership is led by example. 
And when you lead by example, you feel very uncomfortable. And I learned it from the head of FedEx in Israel. And he has one day uh, a year that he lets everyone choose another profession in the business, sw- swap and cho- do something else. And he's going to do the customer service and somebody else is going to do the yes. marketing. And it's wonderful. And when you lead by example... I think this is a very transformational leadership. We are not living in an era of transactional leadership. There's a huge difference. Mm. So I think if you want to stick up, especially in the AI generation, where mm. so many professionals are gone, yes, and will be gone soon, and even in my even in my area, you know, mm. uh, if you think that you're going to go to a concert live and sit down quietly for two hours, you're wrong. The best concerts are going to be in I'm telling you in five years' time, you if you want to hear sting performing in. Australia, you're going to enter a digital platform, put a beautiful earphones and, and feeling that you're in the metaverse and watching all the other audiences. It's not a Zoom experience. It's going to be a metaverse experience. And you're going to go and hear everything you want sitting where you want. So there is no constraints of time and place. And we are going to the AI generation and leaders have to be different. To be able to that does scare me a little that it's scary there won't be the time for the the personal because everything in life is about that human connection and I agree and having those, those experiences in person and as incredible as that metaverse might become as an alternative I really hope we don't lose me too the in-person events and and concerts and experiences I think that You touched something so beautiful because the words soft skills that are so meaningful they're not anymore called soft skills mm. it's essential skills so yes. the you know the next generation of leaders are about those you know excellent essential personal skills and if you have them you're going to succeed because so many professions are going to be done anyway mm. so this is the added value to make you move by personal attachment and people don't know how to do it these days. It's so true. And just to, just to go back on one thing you said um, that I disagree with, so slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, tell me. Is I don't believe we don't admire anyone. I think we are yeah. in an era where we admire a lot of people. I agree with you that it's the only way to be uncomfortable. But so who you admire? I admire a lot of people, but I, I particularly admire you. And right now I no. really admire you <laughs> for this conversation. And I've learned so much. So, so thank you very much oh, wow. for sitting uncomfortably with me. Thank you so much, Gemma Greaves. It's an honor to be here. It really feels... Not just pleasure, but a real it's a treasure to to sit next to you and contemplate on such beautiful subjects. Thank you. Wonderful with the cactus with us as well. Which, <laughs> yes, you know, it's all prickly. Thank you so Thank much for it. I'm Gemma Greaves, and are you sitting uncomfortably is a fresh air production, and the producers are Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. If you enjoyed this, Now award-winning podcast, then please do me a massive favor and follow us, recommend us, and if you can, review us. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests. And I want to continue to have these uncomfortable conversations with incredible people like Horace. Thank you so much. Until next time.